Our scripture this morning comes from the book of Colossians, chapter 1, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 8 for us. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God, our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of all the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Friends, this is the Word of God. One of the most dangerous things in the world is when you think you understand something, but you don't. It's when you think you get it, but you don't really get it. And the more important something is, the more disastrous it is when you don't get it. This is especially true with the gospel. So I'll give you a dramatic example of this and a more mundane example. First, the dramatic example. I'm sure most of you heard uh, about the shooting that took place last week in San Diego. Uh, Another white supremacist, anti-Semitic man, walked into a synagogue and opened fire, killing a woman and wounding three other people. Uh, As it turns out, he was a member of a local Presbyterian church, and uh, He wrote a letter describing his motives for the shooting. Um, I I haven't had a chance to read it. I don't think it's even published. But uh, apparently from reports I've read about the letter, it sounds like he had been taught quite a lot of orthodox Christian theology. And yet what he did was completely antithetical to everything in Christianity. You see, your head can be filled with knowledge about something, and yet the life you live is the total opposite of it. Now, that's a dramatic example. And it'd be easy for us to look at that and think, well, you know, I'm not going around shooting people, so this doesn't apply to me. But let me give you a more mundane example of this. We can say we believe God cares for us, but still be filled with anxiety. We can say that we believe God is in control of all things, but still be really up in arms about politics. We can say that we believe God loves us, but still be driven by insecurity. Or we can say that we believe God loves other people, and yet our hearts are filled with anger and condemnation of others. And you may really, really believe those things about God, but they're not having as much of an impact on your life as they should. Why? Because you can think you get something, but you don't really get it. Or at least not as much as you should. Now, here's why this is so important for us. Maybe you've rejected Christianity, but... What if what you rejected wasn't really Christianity in the first place? Uh, What if you think you get it, but you don't get it? Or maybe you're exploring Christianity. What would be some signs or some indicators that you're actually starting to get it? Or maybe you are a Christian or you think you're a Christian, but you're still driven at times by anxiety or insecurity or anger or shame or hopelessness or pride, although that's a tough one because nobody thinks they struggle with pride. Uh, In other words, you are a Christian, but your life isn't changing. 
We're beginning a new series this morning on Paul's letter to the Colossians. One of the main reasons Paul is writing is because he wants to make sure they get the gospel. Because if you get it, it can change your life. But if you don't get it, and especially if you think you get it, but you don't, it can make shipwreck of your life. So this week is really just an introduction. Uh, We're just looking at the first few verses. But already in these first few verses, Paul tells us a lot about what it means to get the gospel and how it changes your life. And he does so especially by talking about grace. Paul shows us two big things this morning. We're going to see the centrality of grace and the fruit of grace, okay? The centrality and the fruit of grace. First, the centrality of grace. Now, I just want to say right at the beginning, I don't think it's possible to reduce the gospel to just one word. You know, the gospel is pretty simple, but it is bigger than just one word. Nonetheless, there are certain concepts or ideas that are central to the gospel, And one of the big ones is right here in this passage. At the end of verse 5, Paul tells the Colossians, you heard the word of truth, the gospel. But then he goes on to describe how the gospel came to them and how it's bearing fruit in the world, it's bearing fruit in them. He says the gospel is doing all kinds of stuff and it's been doing it ever since. Notice how he puts it at the end of verse 6. He doesn't say since the day you heard and understood the gospel, even though that's what he's talking about. He says, since the day you heard and understood the grace of God. Now, here's the point. Grace is so central to the gospel that Paul can use it as a synonym for the gospel. He's saying to hear the gospel is to hear about the grace of God. And and so, as he says in verse 6, he says, the gospel is bearing fruit and increasing. Now, what is fruit? That's kind of an odd word. We don't really talk like that in our contemporary culture. But in the New Testament, fruit means a changed life. Fruit means character and virtue. But notice how he says it. He says the gospel produces the fruit. The gospel produces the fruit. So let me take this one step further. If grace is a synonym for the gospel, then Paul is telling us that grace produces a changed life. Grace produces character and virtue and integrity and goodness. Grace produces a changed life not the other way around. It's not a changed life produces grace, okay? In other words, the gospel is not first you change your life and then God gives you grace. It's not first you get your act together, first you clean yourself up, first you start trying really hard to be a good person and then God loves you and accepts you. No, the gospel is first God loves you, first God accepts you, first God treasures you and cherishes you and delights in you, first he gives you grace And that produces a changed life. Now, we're going to talk about what that changed life looks like um, more in just a little bit. But for now, here's why it's so important we see the centrality of grace. The gospel is grace first, a changed life second. And friends, it has to go in that order. If we get those two things backwards, if we get them mixed up, we miss the gospel. It's grace first, a changed life second. Now, here's the problem. Many of you, right now, inwardly, you're nodding your heads. You're saying, yeah, oh, I believe it. I get it. But later today, if you walked out of here and someone was to ask you, hey, are you a Christian? You'd say, well, I'm trying. I'm trying to live up to what God wants for me. I I haven't lived a perfect life by any stretch, but I know in my heart I'm a good person. What just happened? In here, we'll nod our heads and we'll say, oh, yes, grace first, changed life second. 
But when we walk out of these doors, immediately the default mode of our hearts is to say, well, God loves me because I'm a good person. Why is that? Well, Paul actually shows us why in this passage. Once again, if you look back at verse 6, Paul reminds the Colossians of when they first heard the gospel. But notice how he puts it. He doesn't just say, since the day you heard the grace of God. He says, since the day you heard and understood. That word understood is a form of the word for knowledge. It's a word that basically means to come to know something. It's like when we say, it finally dawned on me. You know, the sun pops up over the horizon and it's like, oh, now I see. In other words, Paul is saying you can hear the gospel over and over and over and over again and never get it because it's not enough just to hear it. There has to come a day when you don't just hear it, but you understand it, when it finally comes home to you, when it breaks through your heart and you say, I've been hearing this my whole life, but I never really got it until now. So for instance, why do you think that man in San Diego could be in church his whole life, but still walk into a synagogue and open fire? Because it's possible to hear about grace, but never understand. Friends, if you're here this morning and you're thinking, listen, I know all this stuff, but it's so basic. Can't we move on to something else? If you think there's something else you need to move on to, then you've heard, but you haven't understood. Or if you're here this morning and you think that some people are worthy of love and compassion, but other people, well, those people are just beyond the pale. If there's a judgmentalness in your heart, if there's an anger, a withholding of compassion, if you think, look, I get it, but these people over here, they just don't get it. It's because you've heard, but you don't get it. You don't understand. It's not penetrating your heart. Or if you're someone who says, look, all religions are basically the same. The important thing is to be a good person and try to make the world a better place. If that's what you think the gospel is, then you've heard, but you haven't understood. Because every other religion says, here's what you must do to connect with God and have a changed life. Only the gospel begins with grace and says, here's what God has done to connect with you and change your life. Friends, this is qualitatively different from every other religion. It's kind of like that old Sesame Street song, one of these things is not like the other. And listen, I know this can sound critical of other religions, um, and I'm not trying um, intentionally to be critical, but listen, you know, the people who are the truest proponents of other religions will tell you the same thing. If you talk to Hindus or Buddhists or Muslims, they will tell you that there are profound differences between their religion and Christianity. In fact, it tends to be us modern Western people that want to insist otherwise. And ironically, and boy, it really is ironic, this modern Western view that says all religions teach the same thing, that is itself a very specific and exclusive religious truth claim about spiritual reality. You know, Western people love to say no one should ever make exclusive truth claims about spiritual reality, but then we turn around and do the very same thing. Listen, you know, you may not believe the gospel is true, but if you're exploring it, you won't be able to make a decision about whether or not you believe it's true unless you understand what's actually being claimed. Friends, every other religion is centered on what you have to do to achieve salvation. Only the gospel is centered on what God has done to provide salvation. The gospel is uniquely anchored in the centrality of grace. And that's the first thing we see here. But secondly, Paul shows us the fruit of grace. 
So he says, as we saw, the gospel is bearing fruit and increasing. Now, as we just mentioned, in the New Testament, fruit means life change. It means character change. So there's that very famous list in Galatians 5. Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit. And he says it's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Paul says the gospel produces fruit in your life. In other words, it's not that you ratchet up love, joy, and peace in your life, and then the more you do that, the more God loves you. No. It's that the more the grace of God penetrates your heart, the more you understand it, the more it breaks through to you, then the more it produces the fruit in your life. So if you're filled with fear and anxiety, it's because you're missing the fruit of peace. Or if you're always angry and and scrappy with other people, it's because you're missing the fruit of joy. Or if you're anxious and insecure about your worth and status in this world, that's because you're missing the fruit of love. And I'll tell you what, every single one of us needs this fruit. If you're exploring Christianity, this is one of the most important things for you to understand about the gospel. Grace produces the fruit in your life. And we're all looking for this fruit. The question is, where do you find it? Because we're all looking for it. So, for instance, Brene Brown is a research professor in social work. She's a best-selling author, and she's a very gifted um, speaker. One of the main premises in her field is that every human being is hardwired for love and belonging. She says that almost every time she speaks. Every human being is hardwired for love and belonging. And, she says, our access to that love completely depends on our sense of worthiness, Um, In order to to experience love and belonging, we have to feel like we're worthy of it. The problem, she says, is that we all have a list of what she calls worthiness prerequisites. Now, what is a worthiness prerequisite, you might ask? Well, in one of her books, she gives us a list of some examples. Um, I'll be worthy when I lose 20 pounds. I'll be worthy if I can get pregnant. I'll be worthy if I can get or stay sober. I'll be worthy if everyone thinks I'm a good parent. I'll be worthy when I can make a living from my art or my music or my side gig. I'll be worthy if I can hold my marriage together. I'll be worthy if I can get married at all. I'll be worthy when I can make partner or doctor or some other position of status. I'll be worthy when my parents finally approve. I'll be worthy if he or she calls me back and asks me out. I'll be worthy when I can do it all and look like I'm not even trying. You see, You could probably add your own worthiness prerequisites to that list. I'll be worthy if I can change my relationship status on Facebook. Or I'll be worthy if I could get more likes on my next Instagram post. Or I'll be worthy if I can move the needle in my chosen field. Whatever it may be, our access to the love we need completely depends on feeling worthy of it. We think we have to be worthy first before we can be loved. So here's the question. What is your worthiness grounded in? Because it has to be grounded in something. We can't just assert it. It's not like we can just announce to the world, you know, I declare that I am worthy of love and belonging, and then, voila, all of a sudden, oh, I just feel so worthy. It doesn't work like that. And we know it doesn't work like that. For instance, there's an ongoing conversation um, among justice and rights theorists about what human rights are grounded in, because they know you can't just assert human rights. They have to be grounded in something. Uh, most of the theorists that don't believe in God ground human rights in capacities like the capacity to reason or the capacity for preferences and things like that. 
So there's a bioethicist at Princeton University named Peter Singer. I'm sure many of you have heard of him. Peter Singer says that human rights are grounded in the capacity for preferences, things like choosing pleasure or avoiding pain. And, he says, because some human beings don't have the capacities like newborn infants or senile people or mentally handicapped people, he says they have no rights because they have no capacities. And, he says, even more than that, we're perfectly justified in euthanizing them. You know, a lot of people are always mad at Peter Singer, but he's just being logical and rational and true to his worldview. If our worth as human beings is grounded in our capacities, then people without capacities have no worth. Do you see how important this question is? What is your worthiness grounded in? Because it has to be grounded in something. Your access to love and belonging completely depends on you finding something to ground your worthiness in that's secure. So here's the question. How does the gospel give that to you? Well, before I answer that question, let me shift over to the Christians for just a moment. Because getting grace is just as important for you. I know this from my own experience. And I also know this from talking and listening to a lot of other Christians. One of the most common experiences for Christians is that we think that, you know, we get in the door of a relationship with God by grace, but then the way you get on with the Christian life, the way you advance is by working your tail off to grow in virtue and obedience and holiness. So we'll say, yeah, yeah, I know all about grace. That's the way you become a Christian, but the way you advance is through hard work and obedience. No, it's not. It's not that you get in with grace, but then you get on by working really hard. Friends, the way you get in is the way you get on. It's all grace. And listen, I'm not saying there's no place for obedience in the Christian life. Of course there is. And we'll talk more about that in just a few weeks. But remember what we saw at the beginning. Grace produces the fruit. Grace produces the changed life. Our biggest problems are always a failure to take the grace that got us into a relationship with God and then apply that grace to the rest of our lives right now. If we don't do that, and if we don't learn how to do that, it leads to huge problems in our lives. So, for example, there's a great uh, Christian writer named Richard Loveless. He wrote a very famous and um, wonderful book called Dynamics of Spiritual Life. In that book... He says one of the biggest problems for Christians is when they get justification and sanctification mixed up. Um, justification means your status before God. It means that God loves you and accepts you. Sanctification just means your growth in the fruit. It means your growth in, in character. So here's how he puts it in his book. He's talking to Christians and he says, we all automatically gravitate toward the assumption that we are justified by our level, level of sanctification. In other words, he's saying Christians have a tendency to assume that God loves us because we're growing in the fruit. And he says when that happens, um, here's what that leads to. And he goes on to say this. We start each day with our personal security resting not on the accepting love of God, but on our present feelings or recent achievements in the spiritual life. Christians who are no longer sure that God loves them apart from their present spiritual achievements are subconsciously radically insecure persons. Their insecurity shows itself in pride, a fierce defensive assertion of their own righteousness, and defensive criticism of others. They come naturally to hate other cultural styles and other races, 
And boy, we're seeing that right now, aren't we? In order to bolster their own security and discharge their suppressed anger, they cling desperately to legal, pharisaical righteousness, but envy, jealousy, and other branches on the tree of sin grow out of their fundamental insecurity. Now that's a mouthful, I know, but do you hear what he's saying? If you think the Christian life begins with grace, but then the rest of it's up to you to work really hard and produce the fruit in your life, instead of producing the fruit of grace in your life, that produces the fruit of sin. It produces the the fruit of envy and jealousy and criticism and condemnation and and insecurity. You see, it's like thinking that, that God makes a big down payment on the front end to get us in relationship with him, but then the rest of the Christian life is like this never-ending amortization schedule where we're just paying down the rest of the debt year after agonizing year. How do we get out of that? How do we grow in the fruit of grace that the gospel promises us? Well, it's the same thing for Christians as it is for those of you exploring faith. You know what grace really is? You know, we've been talking about grace this whole time, like it's some abstract concept, but how does God give us grace, like practically, concretely? What does it look like in real time? Jesus. It looks like Jesus. Friends, Jesus is grace with a face. You know, there are other religions that talk about grace. It's not like Christianity is the only religion that has this concept of grace. But in all of the other religions, it's always God giving grace to people who are worthy of it so that they are now able to grow in devotion and moral perfection and holiness and thereby achieve salvation. In all of those other religions, it's still the human who must live a good life in order to be worthy of God's love, but not the gospel. Instead of you and me living a perfect life in order to be worthy of God's love, the gospel says Jesus lived the perfect life. Jesus is the one who's worthy of God's love. Jesus is the one who fulfills all of the worthiness prerequisites so that you and I don't have to. That's why in verse 4, you notice Paul talks about our faith in Christ Jesus. He says our faith is in Christ Jesus. You know what faith is? Faith is what you're grounded in. If grace is a synonym for the gospel, and if Jesus is the embodiment of grace, then what is the gospel ultimately? It's Jesus. Jesus is the gospel. If your worth and value is grounded in what you do, in other words, if that's where you get your ultimate sense of love and belonging and security and acceptance, if, then your faith is in yourself. Your faith is in you being a good person. You will end up being prideful and self-righteous when you do a good job. You'll end up being angry and disdainful of other people who don't do a good job or as good a job as you do. You're going to end up being envious and um, um, jealous of people who do a better job than you do. And you're going to end up being anxious and insecure when you don't do as good a job as you should. But if your faith is in Jesus, don't you see? That means your worth and your value is no longer grounded in yourself. It's grounded in him. Friends, a Christian is not someone who's loved because they're worthy. A Christian is someone who's loved because Jesus is worthy. He is your worth. He is your value. He is your perfection. He gives it to you. And the place he does that is on the cross. You know when Paul says the gospel is bearing fruit and increasing in the world? 
And when he says that, when he uses that language of bearing fruit and increasing, he's casting our minds back to Genesis 1, where God created the first humans and he put them in a garden and he said, be fruitful and multiply. Um, bear fruit and increase. But instead of living by grace and relying on God, the first humans wanted to be in control of their own lives. And so they ate the fruit of the one tree God told them not to eat. So instead of bearing fruit, they stole the fruit. And that produced all the fruit of evil, sin, and death that we experience in our world today. You know what the cross is? The cross of Jesus is a do-over of the garden. And Jesus is the second Adam, but he's a perfect Adam. Because the one who takes the justice we all deserve, he did it so that he could give us the love and the belonging that he deserves. The great poet George Herbert, 400 years ago, he wrote a poem called The Sacrifice. It's Jesus speaking as he hangs from the cross, which he calls the tree. And at one point, Jesus says this, O all ye who pass by, behold and see. Man stole the fruit, but I must climb the tree. A tree of life to all, but only me. The cross, do you hear what Jesus is saying? He's saying the cross is a fruit-bearing tree of life for you because it was a curse-bearing tree of death for me. Friends, that's grace. It's a gift or really an exchange. It's an exquisite exchange. Jesus gets the justice we deserve and in exchange, we get the love that he deserves. And the more you see him doing this for you, the more you get it, the more that puts a weight of love and worth and value on you that you could never give to yourself. The more that happens the more that frees you from the tyranny of living up to all those other worthiness prerequisites because Jesus is your worthiness prerequisite. Friends, that should make Christians, that should make us the most secure, most loving, most accepting, most welcoming, and least disdainful, least condemning, least supremacist, least judgmental people in the whole world. Because if the thing that defines you more than anything else is the God of the universe hanging on a cross for you, then how in the world are you ever going to condemn anyone else? Friends, the resources for a changed life are all here for you in the gospel. But it can only come to you by making the grace of God and Jesus Christ the center of your life. How do you do that? Well, um, <laughs> that's what the rest of this series is about. So keep coming back. But for this week, here's my encouragement for you. I would encourage you to take five minutes every day. Just try to find a quiet place where you can sit down, shut down the phone, shut down the TV, get by yourself, and do this. Just ask God to show you all the worthiness prerequisites you have in your life apart from Jesus. And then ask God to make the grace of Jesus more real to your heart. Just take five minutes every day this week to do that. The way you get in is the way you get on. It's all grace. Let's pray.